Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. It's hard to believe, but I'm on week 11 now of working from home. And so by now, I've definitely developed some routines. Running a radio show from my bedroom actually feels pretty normal now. So one part of my routine is the notification I get on my phone every day from the How We Feel app asking me to do a check-in. Every day, I start by clicking on a smiley face or a frowny face to indicate if I'm feeling sick or well. And then I answer a few questions about if I felt any symptoms, so things like fever, mild fatigue, or maybe a loss of taste and smell. It takes about 20 seconds, and then I go on with the rest of my day. So during this pandemic, I've come to realize what an important role statistics have been playing as I try to make sense of the world around me. Watching the governor's daily press briefings, it's obviously clear that data is driving policy decisions, like what parts of the economy will open and when, but I've also realized how much I'm personally relying on statistics as I try to make decisions in my own life. For instance, when we heard that Connecticut was reaching its peak stage a few weeks ago, my roommates and I made the decision that we were going to switch from in-person grocery shopping trips to ordering online. So today, we're bringing you a conversation about how statistics are shaping our understanding of the pandemic. Coming up, we'll hear from Talithia Williams. She's an associate professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College. She talks about the ways each of us are using statistical thinking in our everyday lives. But first, I wanted to start by learning more about the data collection project that I and many other Connecticut residents have been taking part in just by, you know, filling out that daily check-in on my phone. So I started by talking with Gary King. He's a professor at Harvard and the director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science. He's one of the researchers who helped develop the How We Feel app. The people behind this symptom tracking app have actually partnered with the state of Connecticut, which is encouraging residents to do check-ins every day. So I started by asking Gary King to talk about how the How We Feel project first got started. The, the COVID crisis happens and the academic community, like everybody else, uh, has a single-minded purpose to try to solve this problem or at least make some contribution. Everybody wants to make some contribution to this. Um, and academics have been collaborating in larger and larger numbers across all kinds of countries and, and, and organizations and companies and universities to try to make some contribution. And so this group got together um, without me before I was involved. Uh, ben Silberman, who happens to be the CEO of Pinterest, and Feng Zhang, who uh, is a researcher at MIT. Um, they were childhood friends, um, and they devoted some effort to getting this app together. They, they called me, among, among some others. And in, in this collaborative world, of course, we all, we all contribute. The great thing about this time is that not only are academics incredibly collaborative um, in unprecedented ways, um, but the pu general public is also. We can now ask ask questions of them, and they actually provide information. So we now have something like 700,000 people um, uh, entering information. Um, 
which is great. So that's symptoms. Now, you might say when you get symptoms from people, that's not very useful because if you only know the symptoms, that's not a really good indication of whether you have the disease. Um, after all, that's why we have biological tests, right? That's why people go, go get testing and why the country really is focused on trying to develop more capacity for testing. So why are we just asking symptoms, which is in a sense a really bad test? Well, it is a really bad test for one person. But what we're interested in is the prevalence of the disease in the population. And it turns out with some neat statistics, um, some unusual statistical methods, it is possible, even though it's not possible to figure out who has it and who doesn't have it, it is possible to understand the proportion of people in a community that have, that have it. And so we'll be able to use methods like that, which we've developed in other places for other purposes in this context. And that's only one thing that we're after, because there's lots of other really interesting patterns that we might be able to learn. We might learn that it's, it's higher among certain types of people. We might figure out where there are hotspots that we didn't know about. Um, eventually, we'll all travel again. And when you're traveling, we, I think you'd want to know not only what is the temperature, what is the weather forecast, but what is the COVID forecast for that area? Maybe we'll be able to do things like that. Um, if you're an astronomer, you got to have good telescopes. Otherwise, what what are you doing exactly? <laughs> you know. And so this is our this is one version of a telescope. You you mentioned again this is this is not going to tell someone like do I have COVID um, or not um, in the way that if you go to a testing center and you do the nasal swab or something like that it, it is. But you're going to get a, a sense for in my town or in my state, what what is sort of the distribution of are there areas there is a lot of COVID or not? Can, can you talk about, I guess, how are you using statistics to make these kind of assessments of a population level? Okay, so, so first, let me explain that it sounds like magic. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll explain that, that, that it sounds like magic. And then I'll try to explain that it's not magic. Okay, so the magic is, we can't figure out whether any one person has it, but yet we can tell whether everybody has it, which is sort of crazy, right? But we, we can do this. So if you say, well, normally, if we want to know the fraction of people in a population that have a disease, well, we just take all the people in the population, we test them to see whether they have the disease, we add, the, we add it all up, and we calculate the fraction that have the disease. And that's a perfectly fine me measure if you can test everybody but we can't test everybody. So is it possible to estimate the proportion in the population non, non, with no magic um, without testing everybody? Well, let me give you one simple way, which we're not using, but a simple way. We could take a random sample of people, a representative sample of people, test them, right? Even if there's 350 million people in the United States, we could take a random sample of 1,000 maybe, if it's a random sample, and we can't, we know exactly how to make an inference from that thousand to the whole population. We do this with political polls and all, other, all kinds of other things very, very well. So now I've just shown you that it is possible to estimate the proportion that have it in the population without measuring everybody individually. So now I, now I need to go farther because we're not actually going to do the tests. Okay, so what we do is we're going to, some people actually have had the, the biological tests, the medical tests. And those people, we also have their symptoms. So what we, what we look for is the pattern of people that have the symptoms who actually have the disease. And we look for that pattern among the, the, the rest of the people for which we only know the, the symptoms and we don't know whether or not they have the disease. Uh, I can tell you other contexts in which we did this. 
Okay, we did, I did this the first time um, for, uh, it, it was uh, verbal autopsies. And you say, well, what the heck is a verbal autopsy? <clears throat> so in the United States and in the Western world, when someone dies, there's a death certificate and some doctor or medical personnel sees the death and validates the death and perhaps does an autopsy or does some medical tests and signs the death certificate and says the person died of this, of this cause. And if you want to know the prevalence of people dying of certain diseases, you just add those up. No big deal. But in most of the world, there's no death certificates. So like, how are you supposed to, how, how is it that we know the fraction of people that are dying in, in those areas? So the, the World Health Organization came to me originally and said, well, uh, how can we get better methods of verbal autopsy? So we looked into this. And what did they do? Well, they, uh, they went to the community uh, and took a random sample of households where someone had died. And they asked symptoms, quite like the symptoms where we're going to ask, you know, analogous to the symptoms we're asking on the How We Feel app. And, you know, they would say, did, did the person have stomach pain? Did the person who died, um, you know, look in a certain way, et cetera? And, it, what, and then what they would do is they would show the symptoms to a physician, and the physician would say what the, what the person died from. But as we discussed a minute ago, symptoms are a really bad method of figuring out whether they actually have the disease, right? You give it to a second physician, and they give you a second cause of death. No good. <laughs> you know, a third physician gives you a third cause of death. So that's not very useful. But then we realized that in public health, uh, public health people, that are, uh, they're not your doctor, right? They're interested in the health of the population. It's only the percent in the population we care about. Uh, and that's basically what we're going to try to do in exactly this situation. So how do we do it? Well, what we did in, uh, back then is we went to the hospital where people died with medical personnel there, where we knew what they, uh, what they died of. We, we went back to the community and found um, their, their caregiver or their next of kin, asked them the symptom questions, and now we had what's called a training set. We knew what the cause of death was, and we knew what the symptoms were. And we fit a model to that, and then we tried to use that model to predict the people for whom we only had the symptoms. And so that's, that's an analogous approach. The statistical problem is that that kind of thing where you have a training set where you know the truth and you have a test set where you don't know what the truth is and you try to fit the model to the training set and then extrapolate all the way to the, to the test set, um, that didn't work for individuals because symptoms are a bad measure of what people actually have or what, what, they, what they die of in this particular application. But we realized that in public health, they don't care about Anybody, they only care about everybody. So they only care about the percentage of people, not the, not the particular individuals. So we designed a different method to estimate that percentage. Okay. And it worked. And then, and it's being used around the world now and has been for years. Um, so now comes the How We Feel app. So now, so now we're collecting lots of information on symptoms. And I'm wondering if, and I know you, you mentioned this a bit earlier, but I'm wondering if you can kind of talk through, you know, what this is able to tell you that the, level of like physical testing that we're doing right now is not telling you? So what would be great is if everybody was tested every day. Uh, in fact, if we could just make it so that if you test positive, your head turns purple, 
and then everybody stays away from the people with purple heads. Like we would solve this problem immediately. Um, turns out that's going to be a while before we actually uh, are able to test that frequently. <clears throat> and I don't, I don't know if the purple head method is ever going to work. Um, but so we're not, we're not going to solve the problem for one person, but we, we, we think we can make a contribution to the, uh, to understanding how well communities are doing. And at least for now, it's, it's sufficiently expensive to test an entire community and all of the communities and, and quite frequently. And so, but it is very inexpensive to um, ask people to um, fill out a survey and it's, it's essentially free to them to fill out the survey. And if we can turn that into actionable information, it could be very useful supplement. It could suggest where to go do, to do more on the ground testing. Um, and, and of course, the on-the-ground on the testing then feeds back into, into our system. We might be able to discover different types of symptoms that we didn't know existed before, uh, or the symptoms that are discovered in the hospitals we then could use to improve our system. Some listeners may already be using this app, but I'm wondering if you could just describe for people who, who uh, you know, haven't downloaded it, what does a check-in actually look like? What, what are people being asked? Yeah, so, it's, so it's really easy. You... Um, you download it. Um, you say, uh, "Yeah, I'm I'm willing to do this." Uh, you type in your zip code. That's the only geographic information we have. Uh, uh, and then it starts to ask you a few questions. Um, do you do? You, how do you feel today? Um, and then more specific questions about exactly how you feel. The questions change over time because that enables us to to query to ask this larger and larger group of people different kinds of questions depending upon what information information we have. Um, it'll ask you how well you sleep, you, you sleep and you know, if you have a fever or if you have a, a cold or you have a cough or things like that. It's very fast. You can do the whole thing in, in certainly less than a minute. You get some useful information back. You get to know about uh, how many people in the population have, uh, have similar symptoms and, uh, and, some, and some other information that we're adding as well. Um, we're, we're also going to ask questions about mental health and, uh, and other things. It's not only the, the disease that's causing problems, it's, it's the side effects of our attempted cure, um, you know, our treatment for the disease, which is everyone, everybody stay in their house and stay away from humans. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty difficult for a very social species. I guess, you know, another thing people might be wondering about is privacy, um, you know, people feeling concerned about giving, you know, their personal data. So how do, you know, how are people's privacy protected by this? So right now, um, you go, the, the app is very carefully, just it's explained very carefully in the app what it is we're going to do with the data and what information we're collecting and how carefully we're going to, going to keep it. And uh, privacy is my particular that I'm especially interested in. Um, we just had a big conference on developing privacy-protected technologies, which we have plans to put in place in this app and to experiment with. Um, the most interesting thing about privacy that you, that you raise is that right now, nobody cares about privacy. We just care about solving this problem, right? Everybody's willing to just give all of their data for any purpose, well, for this purpose, Pretty much, uh, you can ask any member of the public. They're happy to do it. This is terrific for everybody, um, right? It's terrific because we're much more likely to come to a solution faster if that happens. Of course, it was also important to have data from individuals last year because we were 
going after a whole host of array of problems that affect human society. Um, and we're going to be doing it tomorrow as well. So the particular part of this project that I'm especially interested in is putting in special privacy protective procedures that I can describe into the app so that when we're finished with, the, with COVID and people look up and they start to pay more attention to their privacy and things like that, it will all be completely locked down. So let me describe one of the types of technologies, if that's okay. What we really plan to do is to make it so we never know who are. So the interesting thing, we only are focused on the percent of people that, that have characteristics or certain, certain symptoms or certain diseases or, or patterns like the relationship between certain um, uh, behaviors and, 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 or certain occupations and, and whether, you, whether you contract the disease. Um, it turns out that there are some technologies that also seem magical. So let me now again explain that it's magical and then fix the problem. So is it possible, the answer is gonna be yes, is it possible to design a, an interface so that I as a researcher can have access to the data, can find the patterns that I'm searching for, but it is impossible for me to, to re-identify anybody or to even know whether you're in the data set or not? And the answer is yes. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a technology called differential privacy, which enables, which enables that to happen. And I can, give you, I can give you a feel for exactly how it works. Okay, so suppose just for simplicity, I just, I, I'm, I'm asking about everybody's income. Okay, so if I ask you your income, you tell me your income, I know your income, now I've just violated your privacy. But if I only care about the average income in the population, well, is there a way around this? So yeah, there is. So if you give me the data, a data set, like an Excel spreadsheet with a, with a, col with a column is, is income. Uh, but instead of it being income, let's suppose it's income plus a random number. And the random number could be negative or could be positive. On average, it's zero, but for you, it might be, it might be negative 12, it might be negative 50, it might be positive, positive 4,000, 4, we don't know, okay? So what that means is if you gave me that data set, it would be impossible, mathematically impossible, for me to know uh, what your income was, okay? So totally impossible for me to identify anybody or even know whether you're in the data set. But if I take the average of the whole column, then we actually know that uh, approximately what the, what the real income is because the error cancels out. The noise we've added to the data set will cancel out, right? That's a pretty neat trick. So that means we can um, use much more sophisticated versions of that, which give us mathematical guarantees that it is impossible for any researcher to even know whether you are in the data set or not, but it is still possible for us to find things of benefits to society. Um, I, I wanted to ask, and, and, and I guess, first of all, with, with what you're describing, it sounds like that is something that's sort of a, a ways down the line, or are you guys already using this technique with the data you're getting from the How We Feel app? We're racing to put it in, so we're in the middle. We're all working on the system. We want it to be exactly right before we uh, impose this treatment on, on all these people. So, Right. I'm wondering if you could just tell me a bit about what, you know what is the data you guys have gotten so far from the app. Um, I know you know here in Connecticut, our governor has been talking about this app a lot. I understand there's there's a partnership between the state and the How We Feel app, but I'm wondering you know, you know how much response are you guys getting uh, around the country, and is it being you know especially used in areas like Connecticut where there has been a lot of public communication about this? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that that uh, if the governor's helping, um, we the governor is actually helpful, <laughs> you know, and so people listen, and that's great. Um, uh, and so we have 
different, that, that makes interesting statistical challenges because we would like our analyses to be representative. The larger the sample, the better, but the more representative, the better, right? Right now we're gonna be um, particularly Connecticut focused, um, but, we can, but we know that, of course, we know that you're, you know, people are from Connecticut, and so if we're trying to make an inference about Connecticut versus its neighboring states, we can figure that out, but we have to pay attention to those kinds of things. So there is a lot of growth in the, in the usage of it, which is really terrific. I was wondering about what, you know, what other sort of uh, limitations or statistical challenges there are in terms of the data you're getting back and, and, and trying to figure out what's actually representative. I was um, reading, I think, a, a blog post someone involved in the project had put up um, about a, a question that you'd posed about whether people felt safe uh, leaving the house. And that post noted that the population of people responding currently skewing towards white female users. And so, and then obviously this is a, you know, smartphone app. And so that that's probably another limitation too, where like you're only representing people who have a smartphone. But, you know, what, I guess, what are some of those um, limitations that maybe don't make this like representative of a, a random sampling of the U.S.? And how do you get around that? Yeah, I mean, it could easily be the case that people who feel really sick, like their first priority is not filling out the How We Feel app, right? So then we get a very clearly biased sample. How could we know if nobody, if, if anybody who's really sick doesn't fill out the, 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 um, the questionnaire, then it's going to look in our data if we don't make any adjustments that everybody's well. <laughs> so how do, we, how do we deal with that? Well, we can get a sense because we know gradations of how people feel. And then we can look at the response rate. It's the kind of app where you fill it out and then it'll prompt you the next day if, 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 you, if you allow the, uh, the app to prompt you. So you could you know, refresh your answers, right? Because we want a time series. Um, and if the drop off is higher among people who are sick, we can estimate that and we can correct for it, right? If um, you know, young white women fill it out more than old black men or whatever it is, then we'll know that as well and we can, we can correct for it. We can't always know everything, but statistics is about um, inference. And inference is by definition, using facts you know to learn about facts you don't know. And you never have the facts you really, you really wanna know, right? Um, and so in this case, you've very clearly and eloquently described the challenges that we have. So, but we know how to address, at least address them. Another thing I was wondering, um, we've heard a lot about the How We Feel app here in Connecticut. I know there are a number of other apps. I believe there's one maybe from Mass General that's asking people to report their symptoms as well. And so I'm wondering, among the different apps that are out there uh, to collect people's symptoms, are, are you guys in communication? Is there sort of collaboration between those? Or are these separate projects? Well, they're, they're bubbling up as separate projects, but we are absolutely talking to each other and collaborating, and we're going to find ways of putting the data together and using the same kinds of questions so that it would be meaningful to put the data together. Um, so yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. And uh, you know, eventually we'll be able to, have, to do much better than any one app would alone. And I guess I kind of talking broadly, we're, we're talking about statistics. I'm wondering if you can just sort of talk about, you know, why the work of statisticians right now is, is so critical in figuring out the path forward, um, you know, as we get through this pandemic. It's not only now. It's pretty much always, right? It's pretty much like if you want to, if you really want to know something, you are going to be making inferences. You're going to be using facts you have to learn about facts you don't have. 
right? <clears throat> you made an inference when we saw each other that I wasn't going to do crazy things in, in the interview and that it was going to be worth um, to, to, to spend, to spend that, that amount of time with me. And I made the same decision about you. We didn't actually run a big experiment in order to do that. We, we, just, we just, by intuition, made that, um, that inference. Those kinds of inferences by intuition are often pretty good. And they're often pretty bad, you know. And if the decision we have to make on the basis of the evidence we have is really important, then we want to do it more formally. And that's what statistics will give us. Now, just to be clear, we're never going to get rid of the qualitative part, right? Every decision we ever make is qualitative and some fraction is also quantitative. But if you can supplement human-led decisions with help from quantitative analysis, actually, you can make better decisions. Now, you didn't ask me that question. You asked me, well, why is it important now? <laughs> well, think of the things we want to know and we absolutely want to get right, okay? So we want to make a decision now really fast about what to do in lots of, lots of, lots of different circumstances that affect an entire population. So imagine, making the, imagine if you're the one to make the decision about whether to give a vaccine to 350 million Americans, right? So... You tried it out on a thousand people and it seemed to work for a thousand people. None of them got sick. They had no side effects. Do you give it to 350 million people, right? What if the side effects, what if the rate of side effects is one in 10,000? Well, you might've missed it if you only tested a thousand people and one in 10,000 is a large fraction, but that means a lot of people out of 350 million people would, would get those side effects, which might be very, very serious. Right. So how do you actually make an inference about that? Right. That's a really important decision that we don't want to mess up. Um, so that's just one simple example. You've been hearing Gary King. He's the Weatherhead University professor at Harvard and director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science. He's one of the researchers who helped develop the How We Feel COVID Symptom Reporting app. Coming up, we'll continue our discussion about the role of statistics during the pandemic with statistician Talithia Williams of Harvey Mudd College. She argues that all of us are using statistical thinking in our everyday lives. I'm Carmen Baskoff. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Carmen Baskoff. We're talking today about the role of statistics in understanding the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, if you're like me, it's probably been years since you took a stats class, if ever. But my next guest argues that we all use statistics in our lives, even if we don't realize it. Talithia Williams is an associate professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, and she's also the host of the PBS show Nova Wonders. I started by asking her to describe the ways each of us are using statistics in our everyday lives. I always like to think of people as being kind of inherently statisticians and especially probabilists. Um, you know, we're always uh, weighing probabilities, even when we think about like, you know, what time of the day should I go to Costco, right? Like all of that is sort of thinking about, well, when is it most likely to be crowded? Um, how close is it to payday? And so there are ways that we sort of think about probabilities every day um, that I think makes everyone a statistician or even just sort of 
um, maybe likelihood of travel or when traffic is going to be, right? We try to avoid traffic. And so um, there are ways that we really quantify things in our mind um, that aren't as scary as people sometimes think of mathematics and statistics. And I guess, uh, you know, an example that maybe comes to mind, uh, again, we're talking about this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think all of the listeners have probably heard about the testing shortages that have been plaguing the United States over recent months. And, you know, at this point, we're we're starting to hear now in Connecticut that there's actually, you know, more tests available, you know, and that's a really good thing. Um, But but it seems like, you know, we're almost seeing a challenge here in Connecticut where now there's testing available but maybe not enough people are going and actually taking those tests. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, maybe even sort of the the statistical calculation people are making or, or yeah. the probabilistic calculation yeah. that's going on there. Absolutely, Carmen. I mean, that's a perfect example of sort of us thinking probabilistically in terms of the risk versus the reward. And, you know, for example, if I started coughing, um, you know, I might lay down, I might take some Tylenol. I'm probably not going to be like, oh my gosh, it's COVID-19. Let me go get tested, right? Um, Because then you're going to sort of expose yourself by going out, leaving the house, trying to get tested. Um, If later I get a fever, you know, I might lay down and start drinking fluids, right? And so as these symptoms come on that might lead me to thinking that I have something more serious than just a cough or the common cold, that's going to increase increase my probability that I want to go get tested. And so um, when I think about folks who are getting tested, in a way, they've sort of already self-selected, right? It feels a lot stronger. I'm coughing. My head hurts. I'm having trouble breathing. And so by the time you get to that point, um, that tends to be when the majority of people go out and seek testing. Um, and so in a way, we, we think very probabilistically because we're thinking about sort of our personal probability um, of having COVID-19 and that probability may increase as our symptoms increase. And so that's kind of going to be what ultimately sends us maybe to a hospital to get tested. Um, the sicker I get, the more likely I am to take that risk because I'm going to need help. And, and so when, again, when people are going to get tested for, for COVID-19, um, and, and maybe they're making this calculation, like, I don't know if I really want to go out and get tested. Uh, I mean, does that mean that the, the results we're seeing from, you, you know, the test results we're seeing of the people who go out and get tested are not necessarily a, a random sample um, that would sort of describe the population broadly? You're right. The folks who are choosing to get tested um, a, they've, they've self-selected, so they probably have already exhibited some of the symptoms. Um, also, if you look at some of the CDC guidelines, if you are exhibiting symptoms, they encourage you to stay home and sort of self-isolate. And so a lot of folks who aren't getting tested are staying home, self-isolating, and maybe, you know, um, just allowing the disease to, to sort of uh, run its course over time. And so we're not getting those those data points. And you also are getting sort of overrepresentation from essential workers, so especially um, folks who have to test daily. You know, we're getting a lot of samples from people who are on the front lines, who are taking those tests over and over again, who sort of show up multiple times in the sample as well. I'm I'm wondering if you can talk a bit, you know, we've heard some reports that certain states have been uh, you know, when we're talking about testing data, uh, you know, there's there's two types of tests. There's, you know, the viral tests, like the nasal swabs that determine whether or not you have, 
you're currently infected with COVID. And then there's also the antibody tests, which, um, you know, hopefully are going to tell you, uh, you know, whether you've had the disease in the past. And we've heard some reports that some states um, have been combining um, those two sets of data and they're reporting. And so I'm wondering, you know, what, what are the implications of pooling together these two sets of data that aren't really saying the same thing? Yeah, it's um, it, so so one of the dangers in pooling the viral swab data, which, as you say, tells me if I'm currently affected versus sort of the antibody test, which says, do I have antibodies in my system? Have I had the infection? Is that you you can in some ways overcount, right? I could maybe I had the disease and I got tested when I had it. And so I'm in that viral swab data set. But I also get an antibody test and I always show up in that data set. Um, it's important as um, we as a public, you know, as we start to make decisions about when we're going to decide to go back out into our community, that we keep those data sets separate so we can accurately see who currently uh, is infected and then, you know, who has been and who has recovered in our community, because that helps us just make sound decisions uh, for our families as well. Yeah, and, and I guess along those lines, you know, I want to ask you about um, you know, as statisticians are putting together models to try to understand the course of this pandemic, um, to, to make predictions about, you know, what things might look like in coming months, maybe under different scenarios. Uh, these, these things are happening in real time. We don't necessarily have all of the information and we don't necessarily know, um, you know, all, all of the things that are going to happen in the future. And so can you talk about, you know, how do people build that into the models they're, they're using to try to understand this pandemic? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, and so, with you know, mo- I think all fifty states now have started some uh, some type of reopening. And so, um, as we as we build in models, in addition to looking at the risks, so the relative risk, your cumulative risk, the sort of risk of the entire area, you also have to build in uncertainty in terms of um, users. So, so I need to somehow measure how accurately do I think. Um, folks in a particular area are going to comply with social distancing. So there'll be some measure of sort of social distancing compliance. Um, I might measure the strength of uh, regulations that are still in a state, right? And so if, if, if a state is still um, requiring stay-at-home measures, I may want to try to capture that in a number or in a variable to put into my model. And so as, as statisticians, when I think about um, how to put uncertainty into the model is I have to now think about in practice, um, h- how is data going to be formed in real time? How do cases show up in real time, right? Um, and the way that they show up is that people are transmitting the disease. And how are they transmitting it? I have to try to think about ways that they transmit it and then try to quantify that uh, in a variable or in a number. It seems like this um, put, puts policymakers in a, a difficult position because you want to, you know, make a decision for your city or your state based on the science, based on the facts you have at hand. And at the same time, you know, there is this level of uncertainty. I mean, it, it seems like that this makes it for a particularly you know, difficult um, environment to be doing uh, policymaking based on uh, data and statistics at this time. It's so challenging, Carmen, and I think that's why you see everyone at the table together, policymakers, um, you know, folks who are developing models, statisticians, public health 
administrators are all sort of sitting around the table together collectively uh, to come up with the best decision. But I think at the heart of decision making, the decisions are really centered on the individual. Um, and so I think, I think everyone wants to, you know, decrease the chance and the probability of people getting infected and people getting sick, and especially people dying from the disease. And so once that's established as sort of the cornerstone of the decision-making process, then decisions sort of move out from, from that point. So, you know, again, uh, you know, talking about uh, policy and decisions uh, leaders are making to respond to this this uh, pandemic, I wanted to ask you about what we're learning about sort of the, the different way this disease is impacting different communities in the United States. Um, you know, we're hearing that there are uh, racial disparities in terms of death rates from this pandemic. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the role statistics plays in, in trying to understand kind of these different ways different communities are Im- impacted and, and, you know, what that maybe means in terms of how policymakers should respond to this. Absolutely. Um, you know, what the, the data is really showing um, who has greater probability of death from the disease. And that's probably what's very critical. Um, Lots of folks uh, are getting COVID-19 and recovering successfully. Um, But there are certain groups that once they get COVID-19, they have such a, just a much higher um, fatality rate. And and that has tended to be um, older people and people in the African-American community. And, And there are lots of ways that I think statisticians look at the data Um, One is thinking about some of the social determinants of health. And so uh, folks with pre-existing condition, with asthma or diabetes or um, high blood pressure, hypertension, uh, all of of these are sort of factors that increase the rate of fatality if one were to get uh, COVID-19. Um, and those are, those are illnesses that show up in a greater proportion uh, in the African-American community. Um, also, when we think about a lot of the jobs that essential workers are doing, um, uh, some of those jobs tend to be, you know, working at maybe your Target, Walmart, um, you know, gas stations. And so these jobs that are deemed essential um, are often jobs that are, you know, taken by um, lo- low-income families, um, low-income earners, and uh, tends to be folks who are uh, of color in our community. And so um, they're consistently more exposed to the disease than other populations. And so all of that shows up in the data. Um, when you just look at the, 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 the risk and who is affecting you can see that by large proportions is affecting various communities very differently. Uh, one thing that I thought was so interesting, uh, because, you know, the flip side of that, it's like, oh, well, these are folks who would have passed away anyway, like, you know, the older people, you know, but actually when you look at um, some of the mortality rates, uh, especially among the black community, these are folks who are dying on average 10 years earlier than sort of their anticipated um, mortality rate, right? So a person who is maybe has asthma and is diabetic, who might be expected to live to 65 with COVID-19 was dying at 55. And so it really is taking a toll uh, on on certain communities and on, on the elderly community as well. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. 
I'm talking with statistician Talithia Williams. She's an associate professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, and she's also the host of the PBS show Nova Wonders. After the break, we'll talk about the search for treatments and vaccines for COVID-19 and why we need statistics to make sure we get these medical interventions right. This is Where We Live. I'm producer Carmen Baskoff. I've been talking with statistician Talithia Williams. She's an associate professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College. She's also the host of PBS show Nova Wonders. We're talking today about the role statistics is playing as the world searches for a path out of the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to ask you about another area um, where statistics is, is playing a really important role um, right now during this pandemic. Um, and, and I'm thinking in terms of the development of treatments uh, for COVID-19 and, and, you know, hopefully eventually a, a vaccine, um, which is kind of the ultimate hope everyone has right now. So I guess, you know, listeners might remember having heard reports a while ago about, you know, a a case where where one person has a really promising reaction to a certain drug. I know there was a lot of buzz early on about hydroxychloroquine, um, you know, looking really promising. And then later we, we heard, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea after all. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about what role statistics plays in sort of vetting these types of medical interventions, whether that's a treatment or a vaccine, in determining, you know, is it effective, is it safe or not? Yeah, so this gets back to the the point of having a random sample. Uh, Randomness and random samples are critical because they decrease the bias in whatever uh, results or observation you get from that data set. You know, anytime we're looking at a potential treatment, we have to test it on a group of people to see how effective it is. So we, we kind of start with, you know, taking a, a broad group of folks who have the disease, be giving half the treatment and half a, a placebo or, you know, just like a, a fake pill to see if that treatment has any effect. Um, during that process, though, it's important that we also take note of the side effects. So with any treatment, certain groups of people or certain people are going to experience a side effect um, that, that has to be properly documented and shared with the public once that treatment becomes available. And, and I guess, you know, when people are, you know, there might be a feeling of frustration of, okay, you know, we've heard this company has developed a, you know, a promising vaccine. Why can't I go out and, you know, get it tomorrow? It's this idea that we need to really understand across the population, you know, how this is going to impact people and make sure that this is actually safe. That's why it's going to take so long, you know, for something like that to become broadly available. That's absolutely right. I mean, even once we develop a vaccine and test it on a sample of people, you also have to monitor that sample over time to make sure that they're going to be okay in the ensuing weeks after they've taken a drug. So if I, you know, give a group of drug and seven days later, they're all doing great and they're all feeling great. I can't just go to market the next day because it might just be that in another two weeks, half of them are, you know, sick and in the hospital and have a respiratory illness, right? And so it's important that we sort of follow people for an extended period of time 
so that we can make sure that there aren't lingering side effects that show up later. And then because it's something that you're going to take, if it starts to uh, adversely affect a large number of people, then drug companies are subject to lawsuits. And so they also have to protect themselves by making sure that a drug is very effective and that the side effects also sort of don't lead to other problems down the road for you. Um, so maybe it, it, you know, the vaccine helps me against COVID-19, but somehow it ends up hurting me in some other way. I go blind in my left eye, right? That's the risk I probably wouldn't have wanted to take. And so they have to make sure that the drug is going to be effective by really monitoring people over time um, and testing a wide group of people. And so how do you get folks to volunteer to take the vaccine? And how do you get a representative sample to volunteer? All of that takes time. In, in a representative sample, that means diversity in terms of gender and race and age. and Absolutely everything, right? Gender, race, age, ethnicity, um, socioeconomic status, you know, everything. Um, because you want the, the drug is going to be given to everyone. And so you want uh, children, right? Young people. Um, you want the drug to be effective uh, for everyone. Um, so, you know, we've we've been talking about a lot of really sort of broad scale, you know, population wide uh, impacts of this pandemic, policymakers, you know, making decisions that are going to affect millions of residents. Um, but I wanted to end this conversation on, on maybe sort of a more individual personal note. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you, you know, how can listeners be thinking, maybe thinking more like a statistician or using statistical tools in their own lives as we all kind of move forward and try to get through this crisis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, um, in, in my TED talk, I talk about how people use, can use the personal data that they collect about themselves to make better decisions regarding their health um, and, you know, in, in consultation with their doctor. And I've seen the same thing um, in good ways and, and in bad ways uh, with COVID-19 data. Uh, I think um, it, as an individual, uh, let's say a young person in their 20s, you know, when this first came out, I think uh, folks' decision-making was very much centered on the individual. So there were young people booking trips to Jamaica and the Bahamas and Hawaii, you know, kind of like, oh, there are cheap flights everywhere. And so there was really sort of this thought that my personal probability um, of contracting COVID-19 or, you know, getting sick from COVID-19 is no different from me getting the flu or the cold or, you know, any other season. And so I think there was much more risk among a, a younger population. Um, and as, as data became available about how it affected different types of people, older people, for example, I noticed that people's attitudes began to shift when they were in the presence of people for whom it had a different, a differential probability. Um, case in point, I was in, a, in the um, grocery store uh, two days ago and, you know, I've got my mask on and gloves and, you know, and uh, a senior citizen comes in in a wheelchair and he needs to get groceries. And all of a sudden, everyone's attention turned to him. And we were like, stay right there. What do you need? You know, and all of a sudden we're going and getting things. You know, I'm in line. I'm like, no, sir, come on, get in front of me. Nope, go ahead and check out. And so people sort of put their personal probabilities almost on hold because they recognize that here came in a person who had a high risk of 
contracting the virus and probably also a high risk of fatality given the group that they were in and really wanted to help this person, right? Like, let's help you get what you need so that you can get out of this environment, this grocery store that has all these people in it um, as quick as possible. So no, we don't want you to, you know, go up and down the aisles looking for it. We're gonna send people to get it. We're gonna bag it for you. We're gonna wipe it down and then we're gonna send you right back out the door. And so that was really beautiful for me because I recognize that even though people sort of, you know, have their own personal probability, it might be low for me. I'm in the store in the middle of the day. I'm not really thinking about getting the disease. I'm thinking about the groceries that I need. You know, all of a sudden when a person comes in who we perceive as having a higher risk, we immediately sort of um, turn our attention toward him and made sure that he was uh, as safe as possible. Um, in that environment. And so that really just encourages me because it really shows me that people think like a data scientist, like people took that new information and did something different in that moment, right? Nobody just kept going like, oh, business as usual. Like we all recognized that his probability was higher than ours. So we sort of put ourselves at risk to do what we needed to do uh, for, for him to, to get out as healthy as possible. You've been hearing Talithia Williams She's an associate professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College, and she's also the host of the PBS show, Nova Wonders. Talithia, thanks so much for joining. It has been so fantastic. Thanks for having me today, Carmen. This is where we live. On Thursday, Lucy will be back with a live show about restaurant workers during the COVID-19 pandemic. Are you one of them? We want to hear from you. That's on Thursday. I'm Carmen Baskoff. Thanks for listening.